Hello, this is Meditasio Conversations and this time we bring to you a question and answer sessions from a recent interreligious dialogue at Georgetown University. The second Way of Peace Fellowship Dialogue happened early this year in Washington, D.C. Father Lawrence took part in this event together with Brahmakari Sharan, director of Hindu Life in Georgetown, and Jeshi Tenzin Neji, co-founder and director of Emory Tibet Partnership. The dialogue was also moderated by Sean Hagen, part of WCCM, and uh, we had in the audience students from CUA and Georgetown, and also uh, from uh, the Tibetan Partnership. So this was a day with three main themes, but we are going to listen uh, to a part of a question and answer session uh, on education and values. Anyway, I'm Matt, I'm from CUA. And um, so I, I had a privilege of going to a Benedictine school in New Hampshire, St. Anselm. It changed my life in so many ways. And I think one of the reasons it did is because it offered me a perspective of this very contemplative, uh, awake, uh, alert type of life. And having now worked various different jobs and now coming to CUA and teaching for four or five years, what I see is that that kind of gentle, awake, present lifestyle is incredibly hard to find. It's, it's very difficult for people to understand. And it's not something they can connect with. Um, so I'm just wondering if actually there needs to be more of that kind of, I don't know, monastic presence in some respect in the education in such a way that people are given, uh, for lack of a better term, living models of what it looks like to have that kind of contemplative, ethical value practiced in life. Um, and I, I, I see the point exactly that there's a, there's a danger of it becoming too religious and all of that. But at the same time, I think that, as Father Lawrence was saying, when it's rooted in that kind of contemplation, the, the, the ethics flows out of it naturally. Um, so I'm just wondering if you could comment on this idea that should there be a monastic way of this education revaluation uh, going on? Georgetown is a unique case, um, I think. Um, and I was, I think, vindicated in making uh, the choice to come to Georgetown um, when they offered me the position. Um, Jesuit education and the models of education that is provided here has got many things to be said for it. That is good, a few things that need improvement, but that is true with everything. One of the things that I like is they do talk about the Jesuit values, and there are five Jesuit values that they stress, and these values have been debated, and uh, time and time again, the university has found iterations of the Jesuit values that they would like to uh, use as themes to underpin the educational ethos of the university. Um, but as you say, they have also instituted the program of chaplains in residence. So in the residence halls, um, very like myself, living in a first year residence hall, 
uh, it's kind of incongruous for somebody who is now well past their PhD uh, to be living amongst first years, um, especially uh, those of uh, New South, but that's another story. <laughs> the idea is about having role models, and I fully agree with your um, assessment, with the caveat that how strict the vetting must be, obviously. Um, if we have people whose ideals are um, laudable, who embody the traditions well, then it would be great to have people in proximity with them, um, but also being aware that these people need some sort of space, as well as the, ch uh, as well as the university students. Uh, Father Matt Carnes, who is um, here, he put it quite nicely recently when he said, when somebody asked him about how it is living with, I think he lives with the seniors, um, how it is living with seniors. And he said, um, it's actually not as problematic as people think. So long as we understand that 17, 18, 19 year olds need space to be 17, 18, 19 year olds, and 40s, 50 year olds need space to be 40s and 50 year olds. <laughs> Um, so I think that is, uh, that is definitely a thing. And in uh, South Asia, at least, the old way of doing things with that was that uh, students would come and learn from monks, as I'm sure it was with Catholic uh, education to an extent. And the reason, sole reason was, uh, as well as being expert uh, scholastics, they also embodied the teachings that they were giving to the students. So yes, I do agree with your point. Uh, but how that would work in a modern <laughs> age when there's so little of us and uh, so many of those who are opposed will be interesting to discuss and take forward. Yeah, with regard to that, uh, uh, having religiously affiliated monks and nuns in uh, schools or, or, or in prox proximity with children uh, would be uh, feasible, applicable, if there is value provided the people are really worthy of being models in front of children. But that would be feasible only in limited way, only in the, their own communities. Wow. And, and there they would fit well, but not in modern education uh, institutions where there would be uh, children from so many religious backgrounds and without religions also. So the focus should be uh, taking the same idea of having role models before them, but uh, let these role models be played by the teachers. So along with uh, this project of creating curriculum, which are rooted in uh, common experience, uh, common sense, and scientific findings. That's the main, what do you call, uh, uh, perimeter. Uh, or main kind of uh, the measure uh, by which uh, the teachings would be done. Uh, along with that, uh, even at Emory also, they have come to uh, uh, acknowledge that the educators need to be first trained. They need to be not only well-versed in the material that they're going to teach, but also embody them. So in their training, uh, they are thinking of not just teaching, uh, but kind of letting them, as uh, Father has mentioned, have experience in them uh, through certain kind of secularized 
mindfulness training, compassionate training, compassion training, uh, etc. Along with uh, edu along with uh, educating them uh, on the material that they will be teaching. But uh, the emphasis, uh, the need for that is uh, to have uh, living role models uh, uh, in front of, in front of children. So. Uh, so yeah, the same idea definitely, but played by uh, teachers uh, and through them, uh, even involving uh, parents uh, to some kind of a uh, what do you call uh, association, some kind of a um, uh, of the material being taught there. So that's being considered there. So I think in a modern society. Uh, such thing would be possible only if it is played by uh, uh, teachers teach. of many different backgrounds, but not, without any apparent uh, uh, religious affiliation, or uh, even if in, on a personal level they have, but that would be not the emphasis. Mm -hmm. Every civilization has produced some form of monastic life. After it's reached a certain level of uh, development, it produces a form of monastic life. That suggests that monasticism is a, um, a universal phenomenon. It, of course, now in, in, in Tibet or in India or in Ladakh, uh, now, even now, probably there's a much higher percentage of the population who choose or naturally evolve into monastic life, as, it, as happened in, in uh, <clears throat> Europe in the, uh, up until you know, the Middle Ages, late Middle Ages. Um, and if we just look at the impact of monastic life on Western civilization, European culture, it created all of the institutions that we are familiar with from universities, to schools, to civil service, uh, hospitals. They grew out of the, the monastic form of life lived by a significant minority of the population. They were very useful, plus uh, they cleared the forests of, of Europe and developed agriculture and economy. So that is no longer the case because of numbers. And now, it doesn't mean it, the form of monastic life can change, but the impulse is the same. It will just find a different expression. And I think um, St. Benedict says there are different kinds of monks. And what I see in our community is, for example, we have a, uh, I mean, I, I, much of what I think we can say about meditators in general, you can say about monks or vice versa. It, 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 it easily transfers. And meditators understand these monastic values or monastic, even though they may not be living them out, they may, you know, they may have families and they're not celibate and so on. But nevertheless, they understand the deeper meanings of those monastic values. And in that sense, we can see that Monasticism as a, as, a, as a mindset, not as an institution, 
but as a way of seeing and living uh, these values from experience is, is, is still that is still necessary and valuable and can be encouraged. So we need new forms to develop new forms of monastic transmission. And one of the ways we do that, we have um, an oblate community. Benedictine oblates are people who live in, in the spirit of the rule of St. Benedict, even if they have, you know, they're working 12 hours a day on Wall Street and they have six children at home. But it's still meaningful for them to live uh, from these, these, this ancient wisdom. So I, I think those, those oblates are, when they make their final oblation, what, what moves me very much, whether they're young or old, is that this, they are putting their whole self into it. It means, it doesn't mean they're going off to the forest or, to, or to, to a monastery, but they are putting their whole self into this, what St. Benedict calls, search for God. When people come to the monastery, St. Benedict says, you've got to check whether they are truly seeking God. But if that's the fundamental meaning of the monk, then every one of us has a monk within us or is partly a monk, or because every one of us is meant to truly see God, wholeness, fullness, transcendence, whatever. So I think uh, the, the actual external manifestation of the monastic archetype in, in, in monks or monastic communities will, will always be small, much smaller than it was in the past. But that may mean that, that they are more powerful catalysts to society and to culture. And Thomas Merton was a good example of that. I mean, Thomas Merton went into the monastery at Gethsemane as a rather fundamentalist Catholic who felt that he was, he was moving, you know, he was finding the highest level of life and so on. He later came to, to be very critical of the of the way the life was lived there. And towards the end of his life, he began to see, he, he didn't want to stop being a monk, but he knew that the form of this monastic life needed to change. And he was very struck when on his last trip to Asia where he died, he was talking to a group of students in um, San Francisco and he was talking about how the monk is primarily concerned with changing consciousness, not with changing institutions, because they're not very skilled at that, perhaps, as administrators or as policy makers, uh, people who decide where to set the interest rates or how to whatever. But they are, they, they are primarily useful because they change consciousness. And then one of the students said to him, OK, Tom but we are monks too. That's why we're out demonstrating against the Vietnam War at the time. So, and I think that, that moved him very deeply uh, because it showed that this monastic impulse or monastic archetype, which every civilization produces, you know, is um, present in, in everyone waiting to be discovered. So, I think we have to end there. We're all monks. 
uh, which is a good way to finish. <laughs>